Good morning. This is Alan Carroll at Carroll Pharmacy in Smithfield, and we are proud to bring you Hope for Today, a program we hope might help you, inspire you, or encourage you and give you hope for today. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the King? Who will be His helpers? Other lives to bring. Who will leave the world's side? Who will face the foe? Who is on the Lord's side? Who for Him will go? I have just read the first verse of Francis Habergal's hymn, Who is on the Lord's side? As you think about today's big game, who will you be cheering for? How much does it really matter whose side you are on? Welcome back to another edition of Hope for Today. If you have had your television on in recent days, or read the newspaper, or listened to the radio, you know that all the hype and excitement is over the upcoming game. In the game of football, this is no doubt the most important game of the year, at least for professional football players and fans. There are many of you, including myself, who may watch some, if not all, of the game, which I rarely would do. I imagine there are not very many of you who could tell me the winners of the last few games, unless you happen to be a fan of a particular team who has been a recent winner. I want to read you the amazing story of one hero from the one-year Christian history book by Michael and Sharon Rustin. This is from the January 30th reading. Kurt Warner grew up in a poor, broken home in rural Iowa. His salvation was sports. A natural talent and intense desire to be the best brought him success, popularity, and happiness in high school. Committing his life to athletics, his life's goal was to play football in the National Football League, the NFL. In college at Northern Iowa, he didn't become starting quarterback on the football team until his senior year. Sitting on the bench during those years was incredibly difficult for a young man whose drive was to be the best. While at Northern Iowa, he met Brenda, who was a Christian. As their relationship became more serious, she often pressed him regarding his beliefs about God. Although he admired Brenda's faith, he was not yet ready to give his own life to Christ. Although Kurt held on to his dream of playing in the NFL, at times it seemed quite unrealistic. After college, when he tried out for the Green Bay Packers, he was released at the end of training camp. After working in a grocery store to make ends meet, he finally found a job in the Arena Football League, playing for the Iowa Barnstormers. Although this was an unlikely pathway to the NFL, Kurt kept his dream. Kurt's heart began to turn toward the Lord during his first season with the Barnstormers. His life was more settled, and he was more receptive to discussing spiritual matters with Brenda. He also became friends with Christian teammates and began regularly attending their Bible study. His interest in having a personal relationship with God grew. This is a quote. There was no single magic moment where I shed my skin and emerged anew. Instead, it was a gradual feeling that probably evolved over the course of about 10 months. I finally reached the point where I knew what I needed to do. I probably asked Jesus into my heart three or four times because I didn't really know when my official salvation would occur. It's like I wasn't sure which one was going to take. I'd pray and ask God to forgive me for all the times and ways I'd messed up in my life. I'd tell Him I wanted Him to come into my heart, and I'd promise to live for Him. It was during this time that Brenda's parents were tragically killed in an Arkansas tornado the night they were to have been baptized. Not until this tragedy 
did Kurt realize what had taken place in his own heart and life. During this difficult time, Kurt found a new sense of peace and was able to support Brenda spiritually. This role reversal was a new experience for the couple and brought them closer to God and to each other. Over the next few years, Kurt's dreams began to materialize. He married Brenda in 1997, and his success in the Arena Football League led to one season with NFL Europe and then back to the NFL in 1998 with the St. Louis Rams. He was determined not to let the outcome of the Packers' training camp years before be repeated. His hard work, patience, and determination paid off. He started training camp in 1998, fighting for the third-string quarterback position, and by the 1999 season, he had become the Rams' starting quarterback. It was a fairy tale season, an underdog team rising to the top with a quarterback no one had ever heard of. On January the 30th, 2000, Kurt Warner's lifelong dream came true. His team, the St. Louis Rams, won the Super Bowl, defeating the Tennessee Titans 23-16. Not only that, but Kurt also passed for a record 414 yards and was named most valuable player of the game. Kurt Warner discovered that he didn't really become a winner until he figured out God's rules of the game. And under the reflection here, it says, Kurt Warner discovered that once he had committed his life to Jesus, all things were possible. That doesn't mean that every Christian is going to be the world champion in his or her specialty, but it does mean that once we have sincerely given our allegiance to Jesus, there are no limits on how he may choose to use us. This morning, I want to tell you about a game that is extremely important a lot more important than football. As a matter of fact, which side you choose to be on in this game is a matter of life or death. You need to choose wisely so you will be on the winning side because your very life, your eternal life, depends on it. This game we are all in is the game of life, and there are two teams in this game. The world's team, represented by Satan, and God's team, represented by Jesus Christ. Everyone must make a decision about which of these teams they are going to be on, but the choice is yours. In his book, Not a Fan, Kyle Eiderman asks, Would you pause for a moment and ask yourself, what if all of life comes down to this one question? What if there really is a heaven and there really is a hell? And where I spend eternity comes down to this one question. That may seem completely ridiculous, but if there is some part of you that considers this a minute possibility, then isn't it worth thinking about through that question? Now, I do want to tell you that while I may quote people, that doesn't mean I have read every book I quote from. I wish I had the time, and one day I hope to read many more books than I do nowadays. But what Eidelman is getting at in his book is the difference between a fan and a committed follower of Jesus. And there is a big difference. Just think how different it is for those who attend the Super Bowl game. There are the coaches and cheerleaders and referees and line judges down on the field and fans in the stands, but it is the players down on the actual football field who have invested the most time and energy and sacrificed for many years to get where they now are. They have been bruised and battered playing the game of football, and some have truly suffered, even broken bones, concussions, and other serious injuries. These players have one head coach and they have a playbook that they should all know by heart. If the players do what the coach tells them, and they follow the playbook, a strong and well-prepared team, committed to excellence, has their best chance of winning. 
The best team will usually win. My dad was a big fan of horse racing and enjoyed going to the Preakness for many years. I remember a plaque on the wall in my parents' kitchen that read, The race is not always to the swift or the battle to the strong, but that's the way to bet. And you can bet that, as in most cases, the best team will win. Most assuredly, the team that plays the best will no doubt win the Super Bowl. The Apostle Paul started out as a hater on Jesus Christ and a persecutor of Christians. He was definitely on the wrong team. He was on Satan's team. But as Jesus Christ got Paul's attention on the road to Damascus, and it changed his life, Paul became a committed follower of Jesus Christ and remained so for the rest of his life. These are Paul's words as recorded in the New Testament book of Philippians, chapter 3, beginning with verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That was the end of Paul's quote. In Paul's second and final letter to his friend Timothy, he says, I have fought long and hard for my Lord, and through it all I have kept true to him, and now the time has come for me to stop fighting and rest. In heaven a crown is waiting for me, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that great day of his return, and not just to me, but to all those whose lives show that they are eagerly looking forward to his coming back again. Are you eagerly anticipating the Lord's return to earth again to claim his own, his followers? Everyone makes mistakes. You cannot dwell on your past mistakes. Your past is a point of reference, not a place of residence. You must look forward, always striving by the grace of God to be the best player you can be on God's team, paying close attention to your team captain and quarterback, Jesus Christ. He leads us by his example. Are you following him? Now, in this game of life, you have to decide which team you're going to be on. Your decision to have a relationship with Jesus and be on God's team is the most important decision you will ever make because your eternal future is at stake. Maybe no one else in your family is a believer and there is no Christian heritage in your family line. I remember my husband Kay going to a conference many years ago. There were about a dozen men in a circle in one room and they went around and each man introduced himself and then said two or three things about their lives. I will never forget what Kay told me one man who was nearly the last one to introduce himself said. He said, and I quote, Many of you have mentioned a man named Jesus. Because of what you have said he has done for you, I would like to know more about who he is. End of quote. Now this was a man in his 30s who had never heard of Jesus. How sad is that? If you are part of a family with a godly heritage, praise God for it. If not, start now and ask God to begin this godly heritage with you. What a great legacy for you to leave for future generations in your own family. But has a godly heritage stopped with you since you don't attend church, except maybe on Easter and at Christmas? You don't read the Bible and you don't pray anymore, not even a blessing at mealtimes? Maybe you are in the stands watching the game and you really can't tell the difference between those on God's side and those on Satan's side. You think, why bother to commit to being a follower of Christ since there are so many on the playing field and they all look pretty much alike? But you cannot judge those on the field because that is not your job. I heard not long ago that God doesn't judge people until they die. 
so we shouldn't be judging them while they are living. There is a judge we will all face one day. You will face God either as a follower of His Son or a follower of Satan. In studying the book of Revelation, I learned that Jesus Christ has already won the victory on the cross, but that Satan never gives up. Now, we may be bruised and battered by life and the circumstances we find ourselves in. It is painful, and many times it just makes no sense. But don't get discouraged and quit God's team. He didn't promise us life would be easy or fair, but He did promise that He would be with us all the way to the end of our lives. If you are on God's team and He is your coach, you must trust Him and recognize that He is the source of wisdom for what you need to know to play well on His team, and He will equip you. He is also your source of strength and courage to follow Him, since you cannot see the future, but He can. He demands your obedience in order for you to gain this wisdom. And remember, obedience brings blessings. You must show up for practice. You must come with a positive attitude. You must read and study His playbook, the Bible. And you must spend time in prayer so you can get to know Jesus better. He, of course, is the quarterback and captain on God's team. The better you get to know your team captain, and the closer you get to him, the better you will perform. God's help is always available, and he is vitally interested in his team. But we, as team members, must ask for his help and guidance, which will most likely be a daily occurrence since we are always needing help with our problems and dilemmas that seem to never end. We may get bruised, and we will suffer in this game of life, no matter which team we are on. But we had better be sure we are on the winning team. Consider the disciples of Jesus. These men followed Jesus around for over three years, and they saw him perform countless miracles. But near the end, one disciple, Judas Iscariot, betrayed him, and ten went into hiding while he was crucified. They had begun to think they were on the losing team. John was the only disciple who was present at the crucifixion. I find it very interesting to note that John was also the only disciple who died a natural death on the Isle of Patmos after writing the book of Revelation. The other ten disciples died violently as martyrs in the cause of Christ. Why did these men who were scared to death when Jesus was arrested and then hid to avoid being arrested themselves later become outspoken witnesses of their belief in Jesus? Why? Because they had seen the risen Christ and they believed in him and they were committed to telling everyone they saw about him. If they hadn't told about Jesus, I wouldn't be on the radio today because Jesus Christ is our only hope for today. The disciples were definitely God's first string team of committed followers. They didn't have the Bible available to them, but they had been with Jesus, and it changed them forever into committed followers of His. Jesus' last words to them are known as the Great Commission, and they're found in the New Testament book of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Therefore go and make disciples in all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And then teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And you can be sure of this, that I am with you always, even to the end of the world. The disciples took Jesus' final words to heart and did not stop talking about Jesus until they were killed. Now that is total commitment. I want to share with you the brief biography of Francis Habergal, who wrote the hymn I opened today's program with. This is from Robert J. Morgan's book, Then Sings My Soul, book two. The name of the song is Who is on the Lord's Side, and the verse at the top of the page 
before it starts talking about Miss Havergal is from Exodus 32:26. Then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. So this is Robert J. Morgan's biography of Francis Havergal. When people ask me my favorite hymn, I thrash about for an answer, but when I'm asked for my favorite hymn writer, I respond quickly, Francis Ridley Havergal, author of such hymns as Take My Life and Let It Be, and Like a River Glorious. Francis was born just before Christmas in 1846 in Astley, Worcestershire, England. Her father, Reverend William Henry Havergal, was an humble but influential pastor who passionately worked to improve the hymnody of the Anglican Church. He is the composer of the tune Zoan, I Sing the Mighty Power of God, and the author of 100 Hymns. As a child, Frances worried that she was not among the elect. As her mother was dying, she called Frances, 11, to her bedside and said, You are my youngest little girl, and I feel more anxious about you than the rest. I do pray for the Holy Spirit to lead and guide you, and remember, nothing but the precious blood of Christ can make you clean and lovely in God's sight. It wasn't until Frances was 15 that she found assurance of salvation in Christ. Soon she was writing poems and hymns to the Lord. Frances had a quick mind, a clarion voice, and a radiant personality that drew people like a magnet. During her 30s, she began writing devotional books, and the combination of her hymns, poetry, and books made her one of the most popular Christian authors in England. The year 1877 was very busy for Frances. To a friend, she wrote, What shall I do? Your letter would take two hours to answer, and I have not ten minutes. Fifteen to twenty letters to write every morning, proofs to correct, editors waiting for articles, poems and music I cannot touch, American publishers clamoring for poems or any manuscripts, Bible readings or classes weekly, many anxious ones waiting for help, a mission week coming, and other work after that. And my doctor says my physique is too weak to balance the nerves and brain and that I ought not to touch a pen. But she did touch a pen that year. After studying Exodus 32:26, she wrote this great hymn, Who is on the Lord's side, with its resounding answer, By thy call of mercy, by thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine. And I'm going to read you the words of her song. Who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the king? Who will be his helpers, other lives to bring? Who will leave the world's side? Who will face the foe? Who is on the Lord's side? Who for him will go? By thy call of mercy, by thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine. Not for weight of glory, not for crown and palm, enter we the army, raise the warrior psalm. But for love that claimeth lives for whom he died, he whom Jesus nameth must be on his side. By thy love constraining, By thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine. Fierce may be the conflict, strong may be the foe, but the king's own army none can overthrow. Round his standard ranging, victory is secure, for his truth unchanging makes the triumph sure. Joyfully enlisting, by thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine. In closing, I want to read you these words from Charles Spurgeon. God goes with us to fight for us. He will save us, and he will give us grace to win the victory. Depend upon this. If we are on God's side, God is on our side, and the outcome is never in doubt. End of Spurgeon's quote. I'm on the Lord's side. Whose side are you on?
Psalm 31:24. Be strong and take courage, all you who put your hope in the Lord. Thank you for listening.
You have been listening to Hope for Today, brought to you each Sunday morning by Carroll Pharmacy. We hope the message today has helped and encouraged you. If we can ever help you with your prescriptions, over-the-counter medications, or vaccines, we hope you will come in to our family-owned and operated independent pharmacy, where outstanding customer service is our goal.